This is the European edition of Breaking Banks, the world's number one fintech podcast and radio show. We bring you the European unicorns, startups, founders, regulators and leaders innovating the rapidly evolving fintech scene today. A truly localized podcast with both English and local language content with some of the world's most well-known hosts and influencers in the fintech sector globally. Join us every week as we explore what makes the European Union a phenomenal proving ground for many of the fastest growing fintech plays in the world today. Okay, let's roll. Welcome back, listeners of Breaking Banks Europe to episode 102. I can't believe we're past episode 100 already. And I'm very excited. I actually specifically requested to host this episode because it is a topic that is very, very interesting to me, Um, not least because I worked at Klarna, Um, but I have a lot of personal interest in this space. And so today we're going to be discussing debt collection and reimagining debt collection, I think is a better way to put it. I'm thrilled to introduce my guest today, Sheila Monroe, who is the Chief Growth Officer at True Accord. Sheila, how are you today? I'm great, uh, Nina. Thank you for having me on the show. Very excited about this episode. It's a topic that's dear to my heart. Thanks so much for joining us. And of course, Amon. Um, Amon, you're going to have to teach me how to say your surname as well. <laughs> it's a, it's one that I get a lot. So it's Amon Gayumi. Gayumi. Amon Gayumi, CEO of Aphelos. Am I saying that correct as well? Also, it's Aphelos. Aphelos. Goodness gracious. We, 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 uh, probably, we probably selected the most difficult to pronounce name um, with the most difficult to pronounce CEO name in combo. So um, it's always well, a challenge. <laughs> I love it because now this will be even more memorable and I will have go. to remember it. So... Thank you both for joining us today. Um, I want to rewind and go back in time a bit, not to the beginning of time. Um, and we're not going to recap David Graeber's book, Debt, which you know is a tome in of itself and a doorstop sometimes. But I wondered if we could start with going back in time to understand the cultural and the historical context of debt and how we think of debt today. So maybe I'll go to you first, Sheila. I see you nodding along. Sure, sure. The historical content of debt. Um, so I think about this in the US, in the US consumer base, and how did we get to where we are, where there's nearly 80 million consumers in, in, uh, in debt. Uh, and it sounds like a lot, sounds like a big number. Mm-hmm. Um, I think. U.S. consumers do like to leverage when the economy is strong and confidence is high. And you can see direct correlations between credit use and major economic events. Of of course, I think that's probably consistent uh, a lot of places. But I think I would rewind just to three decades or so ago, not not back to um, the beginning of time (laughs) time. But in the 90s, um, a there was such aggressive marketing of credit card offers that you couldn't open your mailbox without two or three pre-approved offers in your mailbox and, you know, enticing offers of 
you know, free balance transfers, no interest periods and stuff. And consumers got to the point where they used that to float debt for years without paying interest, just keep moving to another card, to another card, to another card. What was fascinating to me, because that was the norm, is that when I moved to the UK to join, you know, work for one of the UK banks, I didn't understand why consumers, if they had a card declined at the point of sale, were so upset. Well, it's because it was common in the UK for people to only have one card in their wallet, right? And today, the average is 1.2 cards in the wallet, where in the US, it's 3.8. Got this sort of environment where we have a lot of access to credit. Um, people didn't close down old accounts when they got a new one, of course. Um, when they did, it started hurting their credit scores. Um, but I would say, you know, it's not just all pr- frivolous spending, right? The rising cost of both necessities and entertainment is really causing a squeeze on families whose paychecks aren't rising in the same. So medical mm-hmm. debt. Example, we spend $11,000 per person on medical debt each or on medical um, cost of health care each year. So you can imagine for a family of four, what a dent that 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 takes. Right. Yeah, um, student debt is one point trillion, one point seven trillion. It's 11 percent of household debt. Um, the, the, just the cost of goods. So I think that, you know, the consumer who feels that they're adequately leveraged and has something go wrong. And usually medical debt's one of them. Um, just it pushes people over the edge. Yeah, so absolutely. Yeah. And I'm I'm speaking as an American, so I'm very familiar with that um culture shock coming over to the UK and Europe. Um, Amon, I think the UK famously, what is that saying? The US sneezes and the UK catches a cold. So the UK seems to be catching up with the US. Um, but I remember when I first moved to Europe almost a decade ago and speaking to people and being shocked that they didn't have credit cards. I mean, I remember my mother sent me off to uni and said, go go register, sign up and apply for a credit card. Whereas all of my peers, when I was, um, you know, a young woman living in Paris, didn't have a credit card. They thought that I was out of my mind. So I wonder for you, there's... Uh, looking at the UK and Europe, there seems to be more of a hesitation towards debt. Why do you think that that is? I think a lot of it is culturally kind of um, related. It's interesting, right? Because even, you know, we we can't always make a blank statement on Europe in general, right? If you look at the UK and you compare it to Germany, for example, um, that already is a very, very different relationship. The kind of you know, British people have compared to Germans. Um, and, you know, you can always go back in time and look at Germany that, you know, in the in the, ni- in the 20s, 1920s, you know, had hyperinflation, 1930s have hyperinflation, which then led to, you know, um, very bad historical outcome, obviously. Um, and so the relationship that, you know, economies like Germany have with credit is very different, whereas, you know, the U- UK has always been a bit more aligned with the US culturally. Um, when you when you look at that, um, but you know the truth is that today you know Sheila Sheila mentioned cost of living um, is rising at a different rate than salaries are for the vast majority of people, mm-hmm. and then in UK you have other kind of 
um, changes, you know, for example, student loans, you know, are, um, you know, becoming much more of a um, issue in the UK as well. Obviously not, uh, I went to this, I, I, I studied in the US myself. And so I, I've seen it firsthand. Now many of my friends um, coming out of uni with crippling, you know, honestly crippling debt. Um, and in the UK, it's getting more and more towards, and not, not in the same rate, but, but, but similar. And I think that has, has an effect. I mean, you, you might look at um, household debt to GDP ratios, right, which is usually a pretty good indicator. And actually, the UK has a higher household debt to GDP ratio than US. You know, you're looking at 92%, I think, in the UK versus 80, roughly 85% in the US. So that gives an idea, you know, where, where we are. Um, I think going to a first question, though, you know, debt has always been around, right? And so we debt is actually, you know, going back to um, David Graeber's book, debt is actually older than the concept of money, than the concept of fiat money, because back in the day, you know, um, people, I mean, we talk back, back, back in the day, but people were trading, you know, uh, food. And so mm-hmm. the common um, tradition was if I give you a loaf of bread, right, I lend you a pro- loaf bread, I would expect, you know, a loaf of bread back in return or something that's similar to that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it didn't have that negative connotation associated with it. It's very interesting, right? You look at this concept of debt and you look at this concept of credit, they're basically the same thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but credit has a much more positive connotation associated with itself than mm-hmm. debt. And a lot of this comes back to this concept of taboo and shame, um, it's such one of the topics, right? And so people have become much more free talking about mental health, um, physical health, you know, um, um, women's rights. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, 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 but we're still not able to really talk about debt. It's still a very, very, very taboo subject, even, you know, talking to your friends and family. And I think that is one of the very, very severe reasons why this debt collection industry will come to this has stayed in the way it is because, Many traditional debt collection agencies use um, use this shame and taboo around debt to their advantage and to disadvantage of consumers. Yeah, definitely. I think the reason that this topic is incredibly close to my heart is because I racked up a lot of debt, and I'm very open about it um, because I remember the shame that I felt, and I tell. I, I'm so open about it because I think a lot of people walk around with a lot of shame about debt that they might have, but no one speaks about it openly. And no one says, actually, yeah, I, you know, probably shouldn't have bought that. And now it, and I left it and now it's just compounded into something that I can't manage. And I've, I've spoken quite openly about the fact that I had this, I felt like Eeyore, you know, I had this like gray cloud following me around And it it was that cloud of debt that I just was genuinely anxious and had a physical reaction to about. So I think, you know, to zoom in on on that point where you talked about stigma and taboo, this is really interesting to me because when I think of a debt collector, I'm almost like going back in time to like the cartoon days. Um, I grew up on cartoons and, you know, the, the typical person in a trench coat or like a big coat, muscly guy, he's got a baseball bat and he's going to like break your bones or something as a reminder that you owe someone money. And 
I, I don't know if that's a fair representation, probably not a fair thing to show a child, but I wonder, you know, how has that actually developed over time, that, that um, stereotype? Um, and how are you now thinking about it with True Accord, um, Sheila, with Ophelos, Amon, um, moving forward? So Sheila, I'll go to you first. Yeah, I think it's funny that you say that. I was on a recent um, uh, webinar and someone talked about, mentioned how long I'd been in the industry. And I said, yeah, I think when I started in the industry, we went from cave to cave with clubs and torches, right? Like that is the image. It's, it's sort of a unsavory image of that collection. Mm-hmm. And I think that the industry earned it, right? Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's as much as there is an impetus to change and there's a desire to change the way the traditional debt collection system is set up is designed uh, to, to be stressful for consumers, right? So you have a consumer, like you said, they already feel this weight and they're already stressed out about it. They live with this in the back of their mind all the time, how it's impacting their lives. Will they ever be able to get out of debt? And you talk about the stigma, which is something we need to remove because one in five people in America have a negative trade line on their bureau. It's one of the most common things to be, to have a debt problem, right? But this call and collect environment, you put a low paid bill collector who is stressed out about making ends meet at their home, who is worried about their commission, who's worried about their performance review, and you put them on the phone with people who it's not a convenient time to call. I'm sitting in front of my relatives. I'm at work. I'm stressed about my debt. And I feel like you're trying to talk me into something I know I can't afford and I can't commit to, but I'm going to do it just to get you off the phone. It's a very high stress, high charged um, environment. So, you know, the way we think about it is, you know, going back to what is that person going through? Right. And Mm -hmm. how do we, how do we do this with a lot more empathy and how do we take this disruption out of it? Because the conversation with another person is what often drives a lot of additional stress. So the way, um, true core does it, we have a, we have a, patented machine learning system. A lot of people say they have machine learning and it it does um, tend to bucket people into treatments. Um, but what we do that is differently um, is that we treat people as complete individuals. So it's highly personalized, very empathetic. Mm-hmm. Um, we're digital first outreach. We don't make any outbound collection phone calls. So we use email, SMS, um, voicemail drops, Facebook ads, stuff to drive people onto click on the website and see their payment options. Mm-hmm. And it's great because 96% of our consumers self-serve, solve their own debt without ever interacting with a human being. Oh, wow. Um, when they do need help, um, we have a small contact center, about 70% of their volumes email. So again, we're not having a conversation with people unless they want to talk. And, you know, what happens in that environment is, again, people want personalization. They don't want to be treated like everyone else, the other, you know, 8 million people you're collecting on. So, you know, the machine learning algorithm um, makes all the decisions. So, you know, 
when we're going to contact you and what channel, what offer you get, what tone Mm. of the email, what is the tone? Is it, do you need a more firm tone? Do you need a more empathetic, supportive tone? All of that stuff is kind of driven by the machine learning environment. And, um, you know, it works. We out collect competitors. Mm -hmm. We have a 4.8 Google rating as a collection agency. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have a 68 NPS. Um, It it just, this is the environment that works for for consumers and kind of takes that stigma out and, um, Mm -hmm. you know, really, you know, is great for both clients and consumers. Yeah, I'm I'm picking up on that, what you mentioned about what the customer's already feeling. And there's probably a lot of stress, anxiety. Um, the calls in particular are an interesting one to me because it is always awkward to, you know, especially if you're in front of your family or your friends and you're like, oh my God, this, this person's calling me. And I'm like, it's probably a private thing. They're not shared. It's a very human thing. And actually, um, I recently, <laughs> I found out just this weekend that the word for debt in Dutch, I think it's pronounced schooled, actually means shame as well. So it's a very human um, reaction. So um, Amon, I think what I'd like to understand is, you know, you talk about a human approach um, and a tech-enabled approach. So how do you at Ophelos think about this? Because it is such an emotionally charged thing when talking about debt there might be feelings of shame and anxiety. How are you thinking about it as you build Offalos? Yeah, I mean, it's just it's in our name, right? Offalos actually means to help. Um, so in Greek, um, when we started the business, right, we started with a thesis. Um, and our thesis was that people inherently are good and people inherently want to pay their debts. I love um, that. And so if you don't have that underlying thesis, nothing works, right? Because mm-hmm. then your underlying thesis is people are inherently bad and they actually want to avoid paying the debts and therefore you have to bring out the baseball bat to make them pay, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and unfortunately, in this industry, for many, many, many people and, and organizations, that is the underlying culture um, mm-hmm. where they believe people inherently are not good. People inherently actually want to avoid paying the debts. So I think on the highest level, before we go into products and features and and and, and how we approach it, I think, you have to have a thesis around the space and what actually it is that you're trying to achieve and why you're trying to achieve that. So if we then agree on this thesis that people inherently are good, then you have to think about, okay, so why is that collection so broken then today? Now, what is the underlying reason why I think most people would agree that that that, that it's, an, it's a broken space? And it's broken not only from a consumer's perspective, but it's really broken also from an enterprise's perspective, right? So we, we, we're talking, and it's the right thing to do, by the way, we're talking about the consumer side of it, but there is another side of this, which is the enterprise. And the enterprise, by the way, isn't happy with that collection either. They would not like, they, you know, if they could not do it, they wouldn't want to do it as well, because they themselves are kind of ashamed and embarrassed of actually having to do that collection, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, from our perspective, we then believe, okay, what do we have to do? And we have to basically put people in a place where they can succeed. So how can we make this entire process so easy for them, as easy as lending is, for example, as easy it is to check out with Klarna or with Afterpay or with any of these other kind of providers, then is to pay a debt. 
And that, you know, sounds quite simple, but it is. Uh, it takes a lot of UI and UX experimentation, a lot of A-B testing and getting actually to a point where the payment journey is really, really simple. But then, you know, what actually matters a lot is that engagement ahead of payment, right? Because getting people into the funnel, getting people actually to engage with you is within the debt collection process, Um one of the most challenging things. And so, you know, we, as Sheila mentioned, we very similarly use machine learning and behavioral science. And one of my co-founders is a professor at the University of Hong Kong specializing in applied machine learning. We have three machine learning scientists on a team. And my co-founder, Paul, used to be the IBM, used to be the head of IBM Watson. Um, And so we have, you know, very expertise in in this AI space, right? Where we basically apply certain things on the engagement and behavioral side, more specifically, of how do we actually improve engagement? Mm-hmm. One thing that's very interesting from technical perspective um, in that collection is that it's very, very narrow in domain. So there are very, very specific reasons why someone would engage with you kind of on a debt collection process. Whereas, for example, if you're an airline, if you're a bank, if you're a telco, there are way more reasons why someone would actually contact you. And so it it lends itself incredibly well for machine learning because the optimization can be done in a very, very narrow space of domain where data is quite accurate. Mm. And so it is a very, very good AI and machine learning use case um, where you can see very, very significant impact. You know, a lot of people talk about AI and a lot of people talk about machine learning. I don't doubt its effectiveness, but in certain industries, it's marginal. In certain Mm. industries, it's just marginal because it's not as perfect almost a use case as it is in debt collection. Now, unfortunately, you know, and Sheila will notice, the talent <laughs> in the debt collection industry is just really, really low. And that is partially because of this industry's reputation. And therefore, you know, there are only, you know, very, very few organizations out that actually are doing something truly transformational in this industry, um, which, you know, frankly, hasn't really changed in two decades. Yeah, I think if I can add on, that's absolutely. Uh, absolutely right about the engagement, right? So what you have to do in this space to be successful in this digital environment uh, and the way we approach it is we don't really think about ourselves as as debt collection company. In fact, most of the people that work in the company don't have a debt collection background. Uh, we operate as an e-commerce company. So we have, mm. as Amon uh, described, we have you know, data scientists who are creating the models and and that kind of stuff. But we have um, experts on making sure that we can deliver emails into inboxes to make sure that we can deliver SMSs without getting blocked. And those are uh, really important jobs. And we obsess about things like open rates, click rates, um, engagement rates, as much, if not more so than the payment rates, as Amon talked about, the, the goal here is to get consumers to um, see a piece of information that gives them an idea that they can be in control and that they have options and it's not so scary and they can take that first step on the road. Um, and again, back to e-commerce, we have, um, and, and I'm sure I'm sure a fellow does too, is um, the ability to, you know, we monitor everything you do on the website. You know, what was your browsing pattern? How long did you linger on a page? Did you consider payment options and didn't? And if you left that site, um, similar to e-commerce, you're going to get an email from us and it might say, oh, you didn't see what you were looking for. 
click here for some additional options. So we're having an interactive conversation in a digital environment. So we're just mimicking that, that conversation, but making it much more friendly, palatable, supportive along the journey and much more customized to the individual. Brilliant. Well, I'm going to pause us right there. We're going to go to a quick break, but stick with us because we're coming back to discuss customer centricity and the product itself. Do you want to be part of Breaking Banks Europe? Reach out and learn more about the opportunity to be featured in one of our shows. With over 1.6 million listeners and counting, Breaking Banks Europe is bound to become the place to advance critical dialogue in Europe and the UK fintech scene. Reach out on Instagram or Twitter at Breaking Banks EU or go to www.provoke.fm. And welcome back. For those of you that forgot, um, we are talking about debt collection. And I want to pick up a thread that Sheila left off on talking about the product and various features. And you talked about kind of tracking things almost as you would an e-commerce platform. Um, Amon, you talked about the way that you approach things, lots of A-B testing and making sure that things are being received properly. I wonder if, um, Amon, you want to start perhaps talking about customer centricity. Um, I think you know, we we touched on this already. Sheila mentioned that um, at True Accord, each customer is treated as an individual person with a tailored kind of plan of action. So I wonder how you think about it and work that into the product to incentivize repayment. Yeah, I mean, we, we, we do it very, very similarly as well, right? That's kind of the, the power of AI and machine learning in that context. You know, I, I like to compare this kind of approach that we are taking to traditional, you know, debt collection agencies that are largely phone-based, right? And, and, and I think it becomes very, very clear, you know, what the advantages are. Um, Sheila mentioned it earlier, you know, you as a collector get someone on the phone, everybody's stressed out. And one thing that on the phone, it's very, very difficult to con- convey because the visual isn't there, what actually someone's options are, right? Mm-hmm. So most people actually believe that their option, the only option is to pay now, right? Um, um, and pay now in full. Or um, you can only pay that one offer that that collector is making on the phone to you, and there's actually no other option to that. And so you kind of have to commit to this, although you deep down already know that it is not really affordable to you. And so what do you do? You say, okay, sure. You pull out your, your bank details, your card, and you commit to this payment and say, yep, I'll pay it in a week. You just you have a you know uh, a payment authorization, and you know then the payment fails because you know the customer didn't actually have the affordability, so the payment plan becomes very very unsticky. We've seen this time and time again where people make commitments over the phone that they you know can't really afford, um, because a either they might not actually understand hundred percent what their affordability is, or b because they feel intimidated and they feel like they have to make a decision right then and there, and that's one of the severe advantages that a digital journey has because you can very, very clearly lay out what different options are and the customer actually has time to think. You know, they don't have to make that option right then and there. They might even go and say, I have a, you know, I'll sleep over it and come back the next morning and then make a decision. And um, 
even within that, you know, in our kind of journey, a customer can, once a setup plan is set up, can even vary, make variations to it. You know, they might have a windfall, you know, and say, I actually want to pay off all now in one go. Or they might have a month where they're struggling a little bit. They can say, I want to pause this for one month, right? And that is something that over the phone is just impossible to convey. It's just mm -hmm. not possible to do. Um, and that is one of the like very, very strong advantages that you can have from a digital perspective. Sheila, is there anything at TrueCore, any features that you wanted to highlight? Because I'm I'm personally, as a product person, very interested um, in this. And I, you know, you've talked about the different channels. I think about, you know, in my time at Klarna, we would optimize the product for repayment as much as we could within Klarna before it moves anywhere outside of our ecosystem. And that meant you know, we call it Dunning Communications, was really high touch. It was, you know, always done. Actually, it's interesting that you mentioned the tone of voice because at first, you know, it starts out <laughs> much more friendly and, hey, did you forget to make a payment? <laughs> and then it starts to move into the more legalese. But there were a lot of different touch points, whether through SMS, whether through an email or through the app, the Klarna app itself, where it was kind of saying, right, and you can visualize it. Here's here's the calendar. Um, so I wonder if that's something that you guys also do in-house at, at TrueCord. Yes, that's a good point, Nina. I mean, we want consumers to know that we are with them on this journey, mm -hmm. right? It's not like we have this one interaction and, oh, great, you signed up for a payment plan, you're never going to hear from TrueCord again, right? Mm -hmm. And so... We have a, you know, we focus a lot on UX. We focus a lot, we do our own user research. So we actually talk to consumers in debt about their experiences and what motivates What a novel idea. Isn't that amazing? You know, think about talking to your consumers that are that are doing, you know, interacting with your product, right? Mm. Um, so when we think about it, affordability is, is a key, right? And um, when a consumer signs up for a payment plan, they're not done. Sometimes something comes up for that consumer and they need to make a shift. And in, in an older environment um, that, that wouldn't be paying attention, that consumer might just fall off that plan and disappear. And then you have to try to re-engage them again. And so one of the things that we, um, we built is a payment plan predictor model, for example. So we can predict, I mean, our system's seen 20 million consumers and so it's seen a lot of behavior. Um, we can predict people who are going to struggle and who are about to miss a payment um, and might have trouble. And we'll send proactive content reminding them that they can alter their payment plan. So again, a lot of companies, if you want to change your payment plan, oh my God, I got to call them and beg for a change to my payment plan. It's just like a painful situation. We allow you to move your payment, you know, up to seven days with, with no impact. We allow consumers to reduce their payment either just that month or for several months, as long as they want until they go back to a different amount. It's all in their hands to do this. So they no longer have that. So it's back to the stigma, right? It's back to the anxiety. I don't have to worry with true accord that I'm going to have this really awkward conversation about this. Um, and then the other thing along the journey is we have celebrations. So 
when you're X percent of paying your payment plan, you get an email that's just that. It's just fireworks and a, or a text message with fireworks and a celebratory telling them how far along in their payment plan they are. We're, we're with them. The other thing is um, we're not just there for the consumers who can pay us now. And Amon mentioned this too. Some people aren't ready. And so we do have content uh, where we realize consumers engaged with us, but they're not paying. And so eventually we send them, we might send content that is not collection related, but might say, hey, we've recognized you might not be ready to pay yet. Here's some resources. And we send a resource page um, of, you know, debt uh, mm-hmm. counseling and, and our product engage where they could come in and make offers to all their debt collection companies, which is a debt direct consumer product that we have. Um, so yeah, it's, it's about being there for the whole journey, not just interested because you're paying us right now. Interesting. That's super, super interesting. I think, the the last thing I want to touch on, I want to zoom out from this conversation because we've gotten the nitty gritty. I want to talk about kind of more macro things. So we've talked about, we've touched on increasing cost of living, but you mentioned entertainment, Sheila. And I often think about, um, you know, the world in which we live in. I scroll through Instagram and I'm getting like every other post is an ad And it's always buy this, buy it, buy it, buy it, Uh, you know, this unattainable thing or whatever, and buy this flight to go to the Maldives or whatever. And I like to think I've got, you know, a decent head on my shoulders and I still go through, I'm like, I don't really need this avocado slicer, but here I am buying it for whatever reason. (laughs) So we do live, I mean, in the Western world, at least in this increasingly like consumerist culture and everyone's blogging something for you to buy. Mm-hmm. And now it's even easier to do that with the likes of Klarna, Afterpay, Affirm, Clearpay, Alma, ScalaPay on, on the continent, and PayPal, of course. You've got more options than ever to pay for something. And so I wonder, does this, does this worry you in in the way that people might be falling into debt. I think, Aman, I'm going to go to you first because I know in the UK it's caused such a fuss that actually there's now a campaign to regulate buy now, pay later. And you've got an unprecedented amount of people. The media around it has been quite intense and talking about young women in particular who are falling into debt, chasing this lifestyle. So I wonder for you, it's kind of a, is it a weird one for you? Because you do... You know, presumably make money by collecting debt, but is this worrisome? So, so <laughs> it's a complicated one, right? Because I think on the one hand, and it's not a buy now pay later conversation, but as a general, you know, with digital and online, it has been easier to access credit than ever, right? Mm-hmm. And that, generally speaking, isn't a bad thing, right? Generally speaking, I think getting easier and cheaper access to credit is not a bad thing as long as you can afford it, right? Um, Especially, you know, you want to buy a house, you know, you want to buy a car, you know, you in the US, in the UK less so because we have the NHS, but in the US, you have a severe illness that came out of nowhere and now you have to afford healthcare if you're not on a plan Mm -hmm. by your employer, you know, um, student loans, you name it, right? Generally Mm -hmm. speaking, what it has done to a certain level is 
provide access to goods, to services that maybe many underprivileged people, underprivileged groups haven't had before, right? And so on the highest level, I don't think that this is necessarily a bad thing. Now, where I get worried is that, um, generally speaking, if someone gets a mortgage, um, generally speaking, they have a certain level of financial literacy. They have a certain level of understanding of what this mortgage actually means and what interest rate is and what my um, um, responsibilities are as a borrower towards paying off this mortgage over time. And I think the buy now, pay later conversation, I think, flows into that where you have very specifically a lot of younger people, younger demographics that maybe don't necessarily grasp what buy now, pay later really is, right? Where it is a form of credit. Now, Klarna and, and others might, might argue it's not, but you know you could argue it is some form of credit because ultimately, even if it's zero interest, um, you are getting a certain level of loan. Where I think personally the discussion is getting a little bit out of hand though, is that in the UK, uh, in the US not as much, but getting more, but in the UK, you have a very big problem with gambling, for example. Um, and gambling, for example, isn't super highly, it's regulated, but it could be highly regulated in a higher way, where you have a lot of people that have very severe gambling addictions and very severe gambling problems rack up a lot of debt. Um, and you know, those are oftentimes the type of consumers that we are dealing with, right? And uh, I don't necessarily see that discussion happen to the same level where buy now, pay later is happening today. Now, to be clear, I think regulating buy now, pay later is a good thing. And, you know, if you look at Sebastian Klarna and many, many other people, they would, they would say the same thing. I don't think necessarily regulating it is a bad thing. But I think that, you know, the discussion in the media, specifically here in the UK, um, hasn't been 100% fair, especially comparing it to other areas where, you know, similar things are, are happening. So mm-hmm. just my, my two cents on it. No, thank you for, thank you for shedding light on that. Cause that's actually as someone who, well, can't even, um, tell you the difference between football, American football and European football, <laughs> you know, gambling, <laughs> especially by way of any sports betting is definitely not on my radar, but that's really interesting to know. Sheila, I know, um, Ohad was formerly at Klarna. And so um, as buy now, pay later heats up across the U.S., I've actually seen various um, companies that are like buy now, pay later for your rent or your bills um, or buy now, pay later for medical expenses. And that that kind of worries me. Um, because it becomes larger chunks and they're very essential items in a person's life. But I mean, it's more of a macro worry, I suppose. So I wonder for you, are you concerned about buy now, pay later, about this like plethora of players coming in or how does it, how does it feel sitting where you are at True Accord? Yeah, it's a great question. And and I think like I'm on, it's when I think about it, it's not so much the buy now, pay later product, um, because I think it's a great product. Um, It's about overall you know, consumer overextension, right? So if buy now, pay later comes full force as it is and creates just a shift in the way consumers view credit and use credit, that's fantastic, right? It, it's If it's not building on top of a debt problem you already have. And I think that, you know, for consumers who need 
short-term funding, buy now, pay later is a better product than credit cards because it doesn't come with that high APR. So that's fantastic. We're, you know, those companies are giving access to, to credit for short-term finances. Um, and for us, you know, a company that prioritizes consumers that way is a good fit for us. And, and you know, we have uh, those, those clients, FinTech clients and buy now, pay later, you know, come to true accord for that reason. But I would also say um, we are in this one-click environment, right? It's really tempting. We can get anything at the click. We can have it delivered to our house. You know, we can just... In, so you might compare buy now, uh, pay later to the old layaway, except I get my stuff now. So I don't have a choice to not come up with my payment. But it's one of the reasons that uh, True Accord launched our pre-charge off product called Retain. And because consumers, uh, as Amon said, there are some uneducated or not well enough educated consumers who use these products. They start to fall behind. The last thing we want to do is wait until a debt is charged off to be able to start talking to them, educating them, influencing to get on top of it now. Um, so I do think it's a great product. I think over time it, it would be a shift in usage rather than an add on to the big credit card problems. I think today's young people look at credit cards differently than baby boomers or Gen Xers. And I think the environment's shifting. And I think buy now, pay later fills a, it fills a great void there. That's a really, really good point, the, the generational shift. Um, well, I am going to go ahead and wrap us off here. I think if I let myself, we'll just be talking for the rest of the evening. Um, but it has been such a pleasure to speak to you both. I am so in awe and so impressed with both of you, both of the businesses that you are currently building. And I think it's such an important and necessary thing. And we live in a time where it is possible to build a tech-enabled solution to help so many people who are feeling anxious, who are feeling stressed out um, and, and want to just, they want to pay their debt. So on that note, thank you both for joining me. Sheila, where can our listeners find out more about True Accord? Nina, it was my absolute pleasure to be on today. Um, our listeners can find information at trueaccord.com on our website, where they'll get overviews of who we are, what we do, um, but also access to white papers, previous webinars we've done, um, some of them with regulators and our clients, such as Klarna. Um, mm-hmm. as host, uh, follow us on LinkedIn. You'll get notified of any upcoming events. And if you run a real treat, just Google our co-founder, and CEO Ohad Samat. You'll find plenty of videos of Ohad speaking uh, and explaining everything True Accord does in a very engaging way. Wonderful. Thank you so much for being with us. And Amon, where can our listeners learn more about Ophelos, which I've learned to say correctly now? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <And I> very <laughs> similar. <laughs> very similar. It's Ophelos.com. O-P-H-E-L-O-S.com. Othellos, Othellos, Othellos. You know what? We're still a new company, Nina. We're still a new company. It happens soon. I'm going to go to sleep saying it. Um, But now all of you will remember it as well. Thank you so much for joining me. It's been such a pleasure. And be sure to stay tuned for further episodes of Breaking Banks Europe. 
for listening to Breaking Banks Europe, a Provoke Media podcast in cooperation with Fintech Stage. Don't forget to tweet us out, shout out, or post to the team at Breaking Banks EU on Twitter. If there's something or someone you'd like to hear on our cast, let us know. See you next week on Breaking Banks Europe.